Good afternoon. It's time for Boat Talk on WERU-FM Blue Hill and WERU.org. Boat Talk is a monthly call-in show for people contemplating things naval. However, due to the COVID-19 precautions, Boat Talk will be pre-recorded for a while, and we won't be able to take listener calls live. You can reach Boat Talk by email at info at weru.org. Just put Boat Talk in the subject line. I'm Alan Sprague, co-host of Boat Talk, along with the other rusty anchor, Mike Joyce. Mike will be here shortly. First, I'd like to give you an update on an item we talked about on our October show, the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge. As of last Friday, 21 boats were about halfway across the Atlantic Ocean already. They started in the middle of December. They are rowing from the Canary Islands to Antigua, a distance of over 3,000 miles, and they've been rowing for 32 days as of today. Um, Last October, we talked with Sophia D'Ambrosi of the Bristol Gulls, and that team is currently in second place in the female class with about 1,300 miles to go, so they're on the downhill side. Here's an excerpt from their Facebook post, January 6th. Does anybody else besides me think it's weird to make a Facebook post from the middle of the Atlantic Ocean? (laughs) Anyway, here's the post. Quote, We have been quiet for a few days. We've had a lot of cloud cover, which has meant not much sun to charge our batteries. And so, no phone charge to write an email, and we have had to turn off all non-essential electrics, and just save power for the auto tiller and water maker. We were all having music withdrawals as speakers ran out of their power early on. The past few days have been interesting. We heard that a lot of other crews faced headwinds and had to go on para-anchor. So we feel very lucky that we didn't have to do that and managed to power through But it was slow going and a bit of a slog. On a plus, having no navigation lights on and thick clouds means very dark nights, but that has meant we've experienced incredible bioluminescence with sea lighting up on every oar stroke. We realized the hull had become a bit of a barnacle hotel and so... All went for a much-needed swim to clean the boat, and all came out of the water feeling like new women. After a fair bit of scraping, all the barnacles have been evicted. We even had some zebra fish come to feast on the scrapings. Plus, we are now moving over a knot faster. You can track their progress and the progress of all the boats on the uh, Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge. On a live time map, the map's called the 
2020 Race Tracker, and you can get it at the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge website. That's T-A-L-I-S-K-E-R, and whiskey with no E, Atlantic Challenge. And we wish the best of luck to the Bristol Gulls and to everyone out there in the middle. They certainly are. Yeah. Yeah, I remember the first one who did that. Well, I don't know if he was the first one. Thomas Crapo from uh, New Bedford, on his honeymoon, took a boat, a whaleboat, from New Bedford and and rode across the Atlantic with his brand-new bride. What a honeymoon. I think I got that in the Speck on the Sea book. There's a great book called Speck on the Sea, uh, Small Boat Voyages, unlikely, uh, you know. Is he in that? I believe he is. Uh, Baker, Howard Baker or somebody? Yeah. So anyway, I have heard the story, though. Yeah. I mean, it was pretty well known in the the newspapers at the time. Yeah. Well, spirit of adventure, you know, as we like to say, it's your... uh, it's your attitude that makes a difference between an ordeal and an adventure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and if you don't think you're having an ordeal, uh, good for you. But, you know, other people, uh, like I say, uh, got, got uh, limits. That's John Johansson, editor of Maine Coastal News and frequent Boat Talk contributor, joining Mike. Mike, John, and I will be talking about ordeals in a little bit, but next we are taking a field trip to the James Rich Boatyard to talk about repairs to a nearly 70-year-old Bunker & Ellis twin-engine powerboat. The boat is named Jericho, and you can see pictures of it online. It's a good-looking boat. The original owner hired Raymond Ellis, of Bunker and Ellis, to captain the boat in summers. Bobby Powers, who works at Jimmy Rich Boatyard, knew Raymond and talks a bit about him. Uh, well, he was an old salt. <laughs> yep, and he, he was rough around the edges, but he meant well. He was big to me. He had big hands, I know that. But he did fine, fine work. I think he was captain of a boat prior to that one being built, also, for the same guy. Yeah. He enjoyed telling about how fast it went. <laughs> they put out quite a few lobster boats when they were running, you know, building wooden, wooden lobster boats. They'd build two or three a winter. Yeah, they would crank them right out. Yeah. But when it came time to be captain of that boat, he was captain and he was polished right up. Oh, you know, he had white, white top and bottom, you know, shirt, the uh, polyester. He didn't, you wouldn't recognize him from day to day. Yeah, exactly. I think he always wore a vest, too. That was one thing I think stuck in my mind, a blue vest, smoked a pipe. Wayne Rich, more commonly known as Cooley, Grew up in a boat-building family and was hired to do some repairs on Jericho. Now, for the non-boat people, also known as normal people, I will explain some terms you will hear. First, the stem. That is a piece of wood at the very front of the boat where the planking of the hull on both sides comes together. 
The front ends of the hull planks are screwed into the stem. The front of the stem is V-shaped and the top of the stem sticks up above the deck a little bit. Next term is the rails, tow rails and guard rails. Along the very outside edge of the deck, there is a long piece of wood, usually teak or mahogany, that runs from the stem all along the edge all the way to the back end of the hull and deck. The guard rail begins at the stem also, but goes on the top edge of the hull at the outboard bottom edge of the tow rail. So now we are ready to talk with Cooley about the project. I mean, originally, the, uh, the owner asked me to come down in the summer, asked me what I was doing, and I said I didn't really know, because usually I'll work for Chummy in the winter times. Um, and I knew he had some work. And then in the fall, um, got done lobstering fairly early this year, no, November, first of November or so. So I worked for Chum for about a month and realized we were going to work ourselves out of a job. And, and, I, and I'd, I'd already told him that, that Jamie had asked me to come down and help out on this project. So he said, no, go ahead. The first project that I came in to start on was guardrails, tow rails. They were concerned about rotten wood behind them and if the guardrails were, were bad as well. So stripped the varnish uh, on the starboard side up forward and found the guardrails to be good. A little bit of black on the, on the stem and, and the uh, tip of the shear plank. And so went to the port side, took that one off as well, and found the, also that the um, guardrail was fine underneath. The issues, I think, were where the stainless steel rub rails um, were taken on and off to varnish every year, that the screws had penetrated the guardrail and we're going right in the center of the top shear plank and the deck plank and they weren't holding so that's what their issue was they thought there was going to be rotten wood behind it but there isn't so what do you how are you going to fix that we'll uh, drill out and plug the holes right. because there is a little on the on the guardrails themselves you'll see there's a little bit of the wood is blackened a little bit so probably just drill them out and plug them and I think I think what that is is over the years they probably where that comes off so many times to be revarnished. And then well we'll just put a longer screw in, and then eventually over the years they've gone right through the the guardrail, and then and into that. So then there's nothing left to hold. So I got the, up on the port side and also noticed that the very tip of the the shear plank, it it was rotten had some bondo on it. So I got digging around a little bit and. Found it. The bondo was a little bit bigger than what I thought it was, and then, uh, and it also had a nail. So I, I dug that out. So better look at the end of this plank, and, and it was it was pretty well gone. So I said, better look at the other side too. While I'm right here, so came back around to the starboard side and looked, and just got poking around. It still had all the paint. Everything was still on it, and I said that feels kind of soft. And then I got the heat gun out, and then I got the jackknife, and then. <laughs> When it stopped at the second knuckle, I said, we better go a little serious. <laughs> so then uh, then I called uh, 
shut me down. And my 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 uncle uh, Robert Rich shut me. And uh, so, what kind of a mess am I getting into here? And but then I taken a, a, the heat gun and cleaned it down to bare wood, and then I got poking around more. And he just he just took he goes, "Where's your pencil? Grab my pencil." He just had a walk, and he said, well, "You see the pencil line right there?" And he said, "Strip all the paint." Yeah, because by then we'd already gotten out, and we and we got to about four down four feet, and the jackknife was disappearing. Then we got a little bit lower instead of getting good. And he said, okay, you know, I think we can stop right there. Because if I'd had to go all the way to the knee, it had been serious because everything is just bunks and ball kids and there's so much down forward. It's all fair. So, oh, no. So, um, so stripped all the paint, reefed all the seams, pulled all the cotton, pulled all the screws. Um, then opened everything up. Use some wedges to open everything up so you could get at it to see what was going on. And then pick the stop to spot. And, um, then we cut it. I made a made a little, just a piece of plywood, made a little jig, and screwed some cleats, laid the plywood on it, and I used that for a jig. Just use a handsaw and cut it off. Solution. It was it was tough way up inside. It came out really really well. The very very tip up inside, the saw bent a tiny little bit. So other right exactly. And so the very last inch or two on one side is off of you know eighth of an inch to a quarter of an inch. Just how did you make that new piece? We just we just picked the stop when the rock started to stop. Right. Before it even started, we would okay we. Taking this, I was working on the varnish, and I noticed the top, the cracks on it. I said, when we're done with this, I said, let you on that top for a patch. Just like two days before I found, <laughs> and then I got, and then I, when I found it, I went out and this uh, uh, young game, guy named Joe is like the shop foreman, yard manager type of thing. And uh, I said, you remember when I was joking around about fiberglass on that cap? And he goes, yeah. He said, well, there ain't going to be no fiberglass on this boat, he said. Okay, but you better come in here because I got to find something, and then showed it to him. And, and I, said, I said, "Yeah, we should have done it 20 years ago." <laughs> so, yeah, I, said, I saved the piece. So I can show you the whole. When, when I took that, cut that small piece, a large chunk fell out. Right. And I said, "Oh no!" Then I was in for a project. So most of the stuff that um, that I've done. I've had guidance. I mean, I, this is a project I've never done before. And, uh, but you've been so around with it. Oh, yeah. Been, I've been around it and done all kinds there's, of repairs. There's, there's never, you never do the same so, job twice. Exactly. So, so I, I, I called Chum to have him come down. He comes down, you know, you know not, maybe not once a day, but he'll come down to see how I'm doing. And right. I said, okay, now where do I go from here? I said, I'll try this, try that, do this, do that. Just how did you make that new piece? The making of the stem piece was a... He downstairs they had a eight foot long piece of six by six, and in right down in here on the bottom, it's eight nine inches thick there. So I thought I was going to be able to make out of one piece, and then re and then 
got it up here and realized that once the side it was laying on the ground that I didn't see had it was checked, it was cracked the whole way. So Chum said we can cut it and laminate it. So we we cut it four pieces, planed it all down, glued it up in four in four pieces, commenced to taking what we had and making a new one. Yeah. And it came out well, really came out, came out pretty came out pretty close. Yesterday morning, just just uh, glued it and and uh, there's bronze, uh, half inch bronze rod threaded on each side. Uh, Monday I'll probably start putting the plank back. I wanted to wait a couple days for the glue to really set up. Before I found the stem project, I mean the the boat's in for uh, a lot of varnish cosmetics. Um, there's uh, water leak issues around I think one or two of the, the, the portholes but the corners of the windows where the windows meet the cabin is uh, there's issues there then we're digging into that to see what how extensive that is so nothing on the interior the interior looks like it was done last week I was impressed with how tight these seams were I you know I Tried to take as much time as I could to reef in the the putty and the cotton out, not to chew up the edges of the grains of the wood. Right. But still, they were they were so tightly put together. I, mean, I don't know who planked. You know, obviously, you know, Bunker and Ellis. Right. But the but these are all original, it, aren't they? Yes, the screws were original, and they look like I can put them back in. The very few of them are showing any oxidation. You know the. The, the oranges, the purple on the... Right. Yeah. Yeah. I did not have to dig one of those screws out. Then usually, you know, I started with the, you know, use, you know, use it with a bit brace. And I said, the, um, they're, they're slotted bronze screws. And the, the slots are still good enough. I said, I think I can use my little impact gun, little Makita. Every, every one of them. And I never stripped a one. I'll show you the screws there. Yeah, wow. like, like, I mean, the, you still, the edges of the uh, of the screws are still fairly sharp. I mean, they've still got bite to them. It's like, this, I said, unbelievable. And it's 60-something years old. Now, yeah. we, now, you've seen how Bobby and Chummy did their boats. How much different is the construction on this compared? Not, not much. Right. No, I mean, they're really. They probably learned in the same school, they're, right? They're all very, very similar. Because see, on Beals Island, a lot of times a boat builder can go down below and tell you exactly who built it because they yeah. look at the construction. Yeah, but um, a lot of the ones that Jimmy Rich, Merton Rich, a lot of the the Richtown Riches, all you know, you're, you're built down. Right. They're all very similar um, on on how they were how they were built. Just bought, you know, just style difference. But mm -hmm. your, I mean, your ribs are. Ten inches on center, and right. they're all roughly the same size. And you know, you might your, your plank widths might be a little bit different for a pleasure boat to a lobster boat. But so I got when when Chum came down and asked him, I said, you know, I, you know, where do I even go from here? He said, well, you, you know, you pull the plank off and then do this and do that. And I said, I said man, oh man, I said, how long is that going to take? He said, it's going to take you a month to do this, and it's going to take me a month to do it. I said, I was thinking, I said, oh my goodness, no way, take that long. It's going to. No, but you're not going to have the problem you thought you were going to have with the guards, right? No, no, because I thought I was going to have to make all new guardrails and 
and I'm glad. And I'm glad. It's just, I mean, I get, you know, I'll take them off, sand them. Right. They're they're good. They're still right. they're still fine there. The rails and the cabin sides of Jericho are mahogany, and we discuss the uh, the qualities of mahogany. The problem also with mahogany is, uh, I know, some of the ones that Bobby and Chummy built out of mahogany because they didn't have cedar. Right. Couldn't get it. They had, but mahogany was available. Is the amount of swelling. Dry and swell and dry and swell, right. and they would, they'd swell up so much that they'd, um, especially on the turn of the bilges, that it would separate from your, uh, your floor strings, your main structures. Right. You go down, you look at some of those older ones, and they've, you know, they've pulled off that far, and that's just wow. from that's from the mahogany swelling, because it swelled more a lot more than the cedar does. Philippine mahogany. Yeah. That's 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 yeah. what comes to mind. Is what I think they may have used. Some of the other projects I think are, I mean, the, the inside is all varnished, you know, the inside of the cabin concrete. I think the ceilings, I think, I think ceilings, the bench, all need to be stripped. But I think the main issues are trying to find the leaks on the corner of the cabins. That's my, that's my next project. Come in for a little cosmetic surgery when we found cancer, so we've got to take care of that first. So. But you know, it's 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 fun doing these kind of projects. I, I just, just enjoy it. That's Wayne Rich fixing up Jericho. Thank you, Cooley. So, if you buy a good set of sweeps, real cheap, is that an ordeal? Mike wanted to talk about ordeals and mutiny. Yeah, yeah. I was, think, was thinking about it. I believe it was in October, just before the election. We did a uh, thing on boat talk about good captains and bad captains, and and talked about some from history and some from uh, literature. You know. Yep. And one of the ones we talked about was uh, Captain Queeg from the Kane Mutiny, which yep. is a book written by uh, Herman Welk, who also did the Winds of War, and uh, based on a. Uh, he served in the Navy in World War II, and it's not autobiographical or anything, but the story of a uh, mutiny um, during a typhoon on a uh, mine lair with a crazy captain who was played by Humphrey Bogart with the uh, all bearings in, in the film, as you remember, you know, pretty classic stuff. Okay, So the thing about the Kane mutiny is uh, they knew that Bogey there, Captain Queek, was uh, not really capable and very petty and, uh, you know, just uh, one of the most horrible captains to begin with uh, pretty early on. And uh, part of the theme of the book here, we talked about uh, in October, the idea is once you get an incompetent ass of a skipper, there's nothing to do but serve him like he is the wisest and best and cover up his mistakes and keep the ship going and bear up. And that's what you do when, uh, you know, you still see possibilities keep the institution floating and stuff, you know, and uh, then you've got what happens in the Kane Mutiny. They relieve the captain during the um, hurricane under naval regulation 184, which says, it is conceivable the most unusual and extraordinary circumstances may arise in which the relief from duty of a commanding officer by a subordinate may become necessary, either by placing him under arrest or on the sick list. 
such action shall never be taken without approval of the Navy Department, except when impractical due to the delay involved. And uh, then you got next regulation, uh, Article 185, the conclusion to relieve a commanding officer must be one which is a reasonable, prudent, and experienced officer would regard as necessary from the facts thus determined to exist. And hello, there's your 22nd Amendment in the Navy, your 25th Amendment. I never knew there was uh, much of a possibility of the crew voting to remove the captain of the Navy, but there it is, you know. Uh -huh. And the question is, when do you pull the trigger? Hello, you know. Um, kind of happening around us since Jan January the 6th there. And uh, so anyway, just think of mutinies and the cane mutiny is what that all comes from. Uh, Herman Welk, it's a... Uh, you like know I what say, the worst mutiny in the U.S. Navy was? What was that? Uh, that would be on the USS Somers. 1840, they hung... I think he was the Secretary of the Navy's son. I think his name was Mackenzie. 51, huh? Yeah. Yeah, interim time, yeah. And of course, everybody knows the bounty. Oh, yes. And again, as we pointed out last uh, October, um, Captain Bly, nothing but competent, okay? Might not be great to hang out with, but, you know, he was extraordinarily competent seaman. He had three mutinies uh, against him. One was not totally against him. It was the one at the uh, General Navy mutiny at the North, Spithead uh, mutiny, where every vessel basically in the harbor there mutiny. He was there. Yeah, but that was justified. Do you know yeah. nobody was pride? Oh, God, because they uh, treated those people so poorly, and everybody got that. Even they the had king. To... The king had yeah, to sign had... off on it. No, nope, they had to admit up to it. The other one was he was the governor of uh, New South Wales, and the Rum Punch Rebellion come along, and he spent a year in prison down there, but, you know, wasn't blamed for nothing. How about the Potemkin? You remember the Potemkin? I do, but I don't. I can't Can't call it. That the was detail. the Russian one. Yeah. Where all the mutineers, and the Russians deal with everything the great way. They just covered all the mutineers with a tarpaulin and then shot them all. Uh, you know. <laughs> uh, let's no not have that. defenders in the, in, the, in the Russian Navy. <laughs> we're talking history. We're not making any suggestions or uh, calls to action here. We're forbidden calls to action. But, I mean, living big history, boys, and, uh, you know, good captain, bad captain, as we said before, you can't just get appointed captain. Um, it's a learned and earned position. And then, let's imagine the captain's never been on a boat, doesn't care to figure it out, never really particularly does. And we know we're traveling on a false chart. It's not what's going to go wrong. It's like how hard and, and when, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to hit something, and hello. Um, you know, this is where we got people are, you know, uh, as I said before, interesting, um, you know, dangerous, and we're past deadly. You know? So anyway, and Captain's still at the wheel going, hey, I'm the greatest. <laughs> I like the, uh, you know Nathaniel Bowditch? Yeah. Well, he was he was actually elected to be a captain of a boat sailing out of Salem one time, but he turned to the crew members, the first and second mate, and says, you run the boat and I'll I'll navigate. Yeah. Because he knew he didn't know everything about the boat that he should. And that's a good captain right there. Understand yeah, and he let them run the it. Strength. And he yeah. navigated. The strength of the people around you. So He was an interesting character because, you know, he, he he was a numbers person. In fact, he got some major award from the... Because he understood uh, uh, astronomy. And he had done some measurements on the planets. 
But he also cleaned up Harvard University because at, at the time in the, what, 18, the teens or the 20s of the 1800s, he cleaned up Harvard University because it was mismanaged. But he also got into life insurances and he just knew how to make numbers work and how yeah. to make money from it. Yeah, excellent. But he was a, when he moved out of uh, Salem, that was basically the downfall of the town or the city, whatever you want to call it at the time. Because then they lost pretty much everything to Boston. Uh, and then, of course, the big murder that happened in 1830 that was performed by the Crown and Shields and the Knapps on Captain White, which you know the story of. Uh, it sound, I can't call it. I know I've heard it. I can't call all the details, though. How about this? The Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. And guess who was the prosecuting attorney, or one of them? Daniel Webster. Yeah. Like I say, small, small uh, country on a good day. Oh, yeah. It's, it's interesting to see how tightly knit everything was back then. And the more you read, the more you go, wow, that kind of makes sense now. Yep. You know, one of the guys that was walking around in the dark at that time, 1830s, was Nathaniel Hawthorne. And you know who his buddy was? He wasn't walking around with him at the time. They were friends later. And that was Herman Melville. <laughs> All right. Yeah, cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's and, kind of interesting how it all ties in. And as I said, the Kane Mutiny, Herman Woke, that's uh, from 1951. And as Stephen King says, who reads the great American writers anymore? If you want to be famous, write a good song. I'm lucky they made movies and my stuff. That's what Stephen King says. <laughs> but again, uh, Kane Mutiny does live on. Uh, Humphrey Bogart and the Ball Barons, uh, you know, that's pretty classic American image. And if you've never seen it, uh, try the YouTube or the uh, however else you get uh, movies nowadays sent to you. It'd be interesting to figure classic. out how how some of the classics are read today. Yeah. You know, even in our industry. Uh, you know, because yeah. you, you historically, I think that the book would sell, you know, I don't know how the, the novels sell. Oh, it's a good read. I picked it up and get lost in it. And right. I did a couple old novels. I did most of uh, Lydia Bailey, Kenneth Roberts' book, Over Christmas, you know. Well, how many people sat and, and read, you know, O'Brien when that was real popular? And how many oh. have turned to other people that do the same kind of, you know, stories? I can re reread anything by O'Brien, just pick up a page and go, man. It's to me it's literature and I I don't know a better writer. Plus one of my favorite stories of all time, which I can yeah, now have you read James Nelson from uh Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. And yeah, we've interviewed him. And yeah. a good fellow. Yeah, he um, was interesting because he came to you know, we used to do a symposium, you know, we didn't do it this year, but probably next year they'll do it again at May Maritime Museum. And he was one of the speakers there. And it was a Sunday morning, which, you know, that's kind of a sleepy time. Well, he didn't, you didn't sleep through his talk. <laughs> no. It was O'Brien has the, the, the maturity, and his, it's, it's really about human nature. And uh, O'Brien does that so well with uh, rapier wit, too, you know, which mm -hmm. is hard to, uh, like I say, uh, grow into, I don't care, you know. What your experience is, and and uh, but you got to have some sea miles to get mm. there, and yeah. So yeah, talking about history a little bit, uh, I think just after Christmas we lost a guy, Dr. Charlie Burden, and Charlie was head of the historical, the Maritime History Group that kind of met once a month. Of course, it hasn't for the past year, uh, 
at various places, mostly people's houses that are interested in maritime history. And he was instrumental in actually forming the main maritime museum in Bath. Even though, you know, he was a pediatrician in the area, but his love of maritime history was, you know, unbelievable. He collected, right. he pushed the museum to go in different directions that sometimes they really didn't want to go, but really in the end was the right way to go. And it, that's a big loss for the maritime world. Mm. Yeah, well, I'm sorry to hear it. Yeah, it happens to all of us. Uh, well, not today, thank you. <laughs> well, we hope. I'd like to offer a uh, mutiny story also. Henry Hudson, you probably heard of him. Henry was an English explorer, and he came across the Atlantic three different times. The first two times he was sponsored by the Dutch, and all the tries he made, he was uh, trying to find the Northwest Passage to get around to China. In 1607 and 1609, when he was sponsored by the Dutch, he first tried the uh, Chesapeake Bay, went up there, nope, couldn't make it, went up the Delaware, nope, wasn't that anything, that wasn't the way either. Then he went to what's now known as New York Bay and went up the Hudson River. Um, he was the first white guy to sail up the Hudson River. Uh, he knew it was the Hudson River because there was a big banner hanging down across the George Washington Bridge there. It says, Welcome to the Hudson River. And that excursion is the basis for the Dutch claiming and naming New Amsterdam. So anyway, that didn't make it to the Northwest Passage either, so he came back to England. And then 1610, the English decided that they were going to sponsor him to find the passage over there because they realized there was good resources to be had over there. So they sponsored him on a boat named Discovery in 1610, and they sailed across a little more northerly and went north of Labrador into what's now known as the Hudson Strait, and that took him into Hudson Bay, and uh, he was poking around there still trying to find uh, the Northwest Passage and uh, mapping the whole area. But they got caught that winter in November, um, and they could tell they were not going to be able to make it out to open sea, and they couldn't leave the boat in the water right there. It would have gotten crushed. So they hauled the boat out all by themselves and uh, had a miserable winter, it was described. Um, a little bit more of that again but later, but... So after the winter in June, they launched the boat again, and apparently Henry Hudson was still obsessed with finding the Northwest Passage and wanted to press on, even though they were pretty much out of food and uh, had a couple of guys had died during the winter. Um, most of the crew wanted to go back to England. They were ready to to, to give up and go back. Um, Hudson didn't want to, so there was a mutiny. Thirteen of, of the crew put Henry Hudson, his son, and seven other crew of sick ones and a few who still supported Henry Hudson. They put them into a, a small boat called a shallop and set them off. They were never seen again. 
The 13 mutineers took the boat back to England. Five of them died on the way from starvation or scurvy. And when they got back to England, the remaining eight were tried for mutiny. No, they were tried for murder because uh, the punishment for murder was less than the punishment for, for mutiny. And these survivors had value to the English as people who could take them back over to the new territories for more exploration. So they didn't want them dead. Now, it's kind of a one-sided story because Henry Hudson and his supporters never <laughs> never made it back for the trial. But during the trial, uh, it came out that Henry Hudson, besides being a, more or less obsessed with finding the Northwest Passage, uh, had access through his cabin. There's a little secret door that led down into the hold where they kept uh, most of the goods. And he apparently was keeping himself well-fed and also supplying some of his buddies with more food and drink. And apparently after a while, the crew knew that and, and resented his attitude. And after the boat was launched it, that next June... Hudson insisting that, he's, that they still press on looking for the Northwest Passage was too much for the crew, and that's what precipitated the mutiny. Now, there are some parallels there, but I'll leave it to you to decide on those. But The results of the trial were that none of the men were convicted. The navigator that brought them back was demoted, but basically they got off a little slap on the wrist. Those of you who heard last month's show may recall hearing a report from Korea, Maine concerning an abandoned trunk. We have an update to that. For those of you who missed it, we'll play the whole thing. Hello, Bert. I see you're working late, too. Yeah, just finished. Hard getting stuff done when it's this dark. Yep. I'm headed home, too. Look at that. Looks like somebody's coming in way late. Oh, yeah. Let's go see what they got. Strange-looking boat. Don't believe I've ever seen it before. Let's see where they came from when she goes by. They gotta be from away. They even spelled Korea wrong. We don't spell it with a K. No, and I can't make out that name at all. Looks like Chinese letters to me. Yeah, and it looks like they just got some freight on board. Yeah, uh, that's no lobster crate. Looks more like a trunk to me. Let's go see if they need a hand. Howdy, fellas. You need a hand with that trunk? No, no, no. Not, not trunk. Trump. Trump. We just leave here. Thank you too much. That's odd, but just leaving it here. Look, there's a name tag on top. R. Stone. Don't think I know who that is. Well... Whoever that is, they better get it soon. This rain that just is starting up now is supposed to turn heavy real quick. 
and anything in there is going to get soaked. Hey, uh, I reckon we'll hear about it tomorrow. Good night, Bert. Good night, Lester. During the night, an unmarked van with dark-tinted windows shows up and parked on the far side of the Koreatown Landing parking lot. We resume shortly after dawn. Good morning, Bert. Lester. That trunk is still here. I see. Good thing it didn't rain as hard last night as they said it was going to. Yeah, still, this is no place for this. You're right. When I got here this morning, I thought that white van over there might be after it, but it's just sitting there. What do you say I take it over to the police station for their lost and found? Good idea, Bert. I'll give you a hand putting it in the back of your truck. Look, here comes some dude out of that van. Ah, you finally made it here. You're late. I don't think so. I'm John Flushing of Pox News. You're supposed to be here hours ago. Well, at least you finally got it. You know where to take it, don't you? I was going to take it over to the police station. Police? What? Roger didn't tell you? Roger? Roger who? Uh, oh, never mind. We'll take it. Okay, boys. Stop the cameras, bring the van over here, and put the box in the back. We're headed for Georgia. Maybe we'll stop in D.C. on the way. Next is a filler piece from a previous Boat Talk. Raw Faith. Saw Raw Faith on uh, television. They, they were, uh, had a little segment on Bill Green's Maine. And uh, watching the TV and seeing some people hanging planks on a boat with an air gun. And sat right up and went, what? You can't do that. <laughs> Is this sheetrock? <laughs> yeah, and then uh, a couple weeks ago, there was an excellent article by uh, Aaron Porter in the uh, Ellsworth American, uh, A Family's Dream for Handicapped Sailors Takes Shape in Addison. And uh, I'd heard a rumor of this thing anyway, so uh, being the intrepid... Uh, Keel kickers that we are, we jumped right in the... Yeah, we did. We drove right down there and says, howdy-do, and had a lovely uh, visit with the McKay family. Um, from a boat builder point of view, what they have done is a fairly unusual uh, craft. It's an 86, 90-foot, uh, uh, sort of a uh, colonial-shaped... It looks to me like it would be built around the early 1800s. Yeah, very round bow, uh, very, uh, very large volume, uh, Four deck levels, uh, nice quarter deck, poop decks, the whole the whole works. Um, but you hear boats described as uh, mahogany on oak, cedar on oak. This is oak on oak. And if you really think about it, it's oak tar, oak tar, oak on oak, or yeah. something like that. What they have done is they uh, laminated a keel out of one-inch oak boards, and they uh, uh, used tar in between every layer, spiked those down. They made a pretty massive keel. And it went right from the uh, rudder post up to the stem head. Quite a little sculpture on the side of the road there. Then they laminated some, uh, then they put up their bulkheads. Laminated some, uh, uh, put up some bulkheads to give it some shape. Put some ribbons up. Laminated some uh, ribs, uh, again out of oak, with epoxy. And then started planking. They hung the, uh, there are three layers of planking on this thing. All oak, white oak. Um, the first one 
is laid fore and aft, and they tack that on with nail guns any way they could make the wood cover the shape of the boat. Barely, yeah. There's some pretty big gaps here and there, too. Yeah. You know, it's just the first of three layers. Yep, to, as I said, to give it some shape. Second layer goes on on a diagonal, and we're talking about a bunch of, uh, you know, a lot of these boards are fairly short as well. Second layer, uh, I slathered that uh, first layer up with tar. Second layer gets planted on diagonally uh, with a bevel uh, planed on it and uh, oakum and tar put into that, uh, that uh, seam. And the third layer, which is now going on, goes on fore and aft, or in some places, as we noticed. Uh, no, that's, that's the uh, second layer. Though. Oh, that's the second layer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, some of that's fore and aft. So, uh, some of it's any way they can make the Yeah, the it's really sort of patchwork quilt kind yeah, of Yeah, it's planking. interesting. And the third layer is going on fore and aft, and they are down past the turn of the bilge at the present time. And, uh, you know, this boat will probably float before too much longer. It is a remarkable uh, size, craft, and quite a sight on the side of the road in Addison, Maine. So anyway, we went down there and uh, visited those people and spoke with uh, Father George McKay and his family, and we have a uh, taped interview here. Question me on that. Well, you know, maybe you ought to try going sailing. I might be interested in doing that if this was about me and sailing. See, it's not. I don't care if I really ever go sailing. I think I'm going to like it. I think I'm going to, the, the part I'm going to like is, is fulfilling of the mission, and I think I'll like sailing too, but if I don't, it, it, then uh, that's, that's, no big deal. That's George McKay, who with his family is building a remarkable boat to fulfill a remarkable mission, and it's all happening on the side of the road and river in Addison, Maine. Alan Sprague and I recently traveled down to meet the McKay family and their raw faith. I'm talking with George McKay, uh, designer and, and principal builder of Raw Faith. Uh, good day, George. Hi. Well, this is the first built boat I've built, and so I learn a lot as I go along also. So uh, there's a lot of things I might do a little different to speed things up, speed things along once you've done it the first And so you give up a lot when you start talking volunteers, kids. You know, this is me and three kids that, that built this boat. And, uh, but our motivation has been for the mission, not to make a pristine yacht. And so that's, that's been a big, big part of it. We're going to have any ballast in this at all? Yeah, so I estimate at least 20 tons of ballast down inside. It'll be all internal ballast. Mm -hmm. uh, it could be as much as 40 tons. I won't have any ballast when I launch it. She's going to weigh in probably over 80 tons uh, when we go to launch anyways. And I estimate uh, that that's without all the internal stuff being done. And we only have about two more weeks worth of and we'll be yeah, done on the planking on the outside, it. though. So I, I'm estimating we're going to be doing a lot of work on the inside. And that kind of... I'm torn between trying to get a lot of work done, and every time I add a board, it's a lot, you know, weight that that mounting up on us. How about, uh, um, I've had a little bit of experience with this. They uh, um, need a full set of plans and naval architect calculations on displacement and uh, uh, writing moments and all that kind of stuff. Can you do well, that? Well, I, I can draw up the plans. I, haven't, I don't have a full set of plans drawn up right now. That's one of the things that are holding us up. Right. Once I got laid off, lost that money, we said, well, what do we do now? And uh, the decision was that we would get started on working on the boat. We had an idea what we, on what we wanted to do and how to do it, uh, so we didn't need the detailed plans that the Coast Guard would need for certification. So part of the plan would be uh, get the boat in the water, 
uh, get started on our mission and get some funding coming in and then uh, perhaps pursue it through a naval architect at that point in time. Then we probably will end up getting the boat Coast Guard certified. Initially, we're not going to have the certification because uh, uh, I just don't have the funding to pursue that at this point in time. But uh, uh, I've talked to the Coast Guard, and as long as we're allowed to have as many guests on board as we want, and right. so the voyages that we offer are all going to be free anyways. We don't ever intend on uh, charging anybody. It's been a wonderful experience for me working on building a boat, but I certainly don't plan on ever building another one. Very friendly bunch. I forgot to uh, mention the uh, salient detail. There, like I said, there's uh, three layers of planking on uh, raw faith, all white oak, and uh, it is tacked on to place. And then uh, last step, they are taking uh, big old galvanized spikes and driving them right through. I'm going to be a little bit harder on those folks than I think you are. I'm I'm still skeptical about this thing. I, um, but it's just the construction methods and. You know, it's uh, a boat that I think that needs to be shaken down hard and long. If I were on the boat, be taking any uh, any uh, passengers. We talked about it before we went down there, and and uh, you know, of course, we're approaching it from the point of view of boat builders, and from a boat building point of view, bizarre, funky, fun, <laughs> funky, funky. It's kind of funky, and George would be the first one to tell you that. And very cheerfully so, too. Oh, yeah, yeah, he'd miss you know, it's crudely built, and it certainly at, is that. Uh, I wouldn't even say crude. I would say funky. Mm. Um, there is a, uh, you know, my my big issues uh, is always not, not what something looks like when it's brand new. To me, if something is built well, it'll age well, and I, I wonder, you know, how this will age. I worry about electrolysis, mm -hmm. all the galvanized spikes. Spook desks, spooks. Spruce, spruce decks, decks yeah. yeah, caulked with silicone. They're yeah. leaking already. Yeah, um, I don't give those too long in this world. Well, um, here's the point I'd like to make, though. Uh, I went down there with some skepticism as a boat builder, and uh, I was really won over by the people in the project, the the dream, the the mission, as it, as it were. And uh, I think that. To date, they have done an extremely remarkable thing. Well, that's true. It's it's quite a, a big, impressive thing for someone, just a family. Take of your couple of kids and put them yeah. outside for a couple of years and tell them to help build this and see how it goes. Yeah. Um, take a professional crew and try to do it. I mean, that's a job. It's, as I said, a remarkable project by a remarkable bunch of people, and uh, I give them a pretty high chance of, of taking, you know, somebody in a wheelchair sailing, and after that... Um, how do you how do you judge? Well, no, you you can't really fault their their intentions. You know, this is certainly a uh, a fine a fine endeavor from from the uh, intention point of view. I mean, just being able to take anybody out sailing is great, but being able to take people who have such disadvantages, it's it's wonderful. I mean, you know, nobody can knock them for that. It's just uh, I'm still concerned about the safety aspect of some of these people being out there. They must have to have some sort of liability insurance to be able to take these kids out there. If not, it's really pushing raw faith to a, too much of an extreme. Of the, I think of, a, you know, the boat has no engine. They're going to have or no do at the present time they say they want an engine. Yeah, but if they take some kids out there sailing and uh, need to get back and go to the weather, this boat, as I said, was not going to go to weather. Very all wide handy. beam. It's going to nope. have a really hard time going into the wind. So they're going to be stuck out there. Well, um, 
In essence, you are uh, very weather dependent when you have any kind of uh, engineless craft, and the old fellows, they would wait forever for a chance. I'm in a boat that the gentleman's building. Yes, go ahead. The, uh, you know, the short planks and the continuity of the structure would be my concern with that. Yes, they are. He, he said that mostly uh, eight-foot planks on there. Uh, and there are, if you go and count the butts on there, you'll probably run out of uh, numbers before you can get done counting all the butts on that. Nor are they staggered, uh, you know, three frames and uh, planks between every butt as, you know, in a, a more official boat builder uh, type approach. Yeah, so with the, you know, the tar is almost a lubricant as opposed to, a, you know, epoxy or a glue or a whatnot. Well, you're right, and uh, that's... Uh, real big concern of mine anyway of the uh, the keel that he's made which is just nailed with the uh, iron nails and tar in between but um one thing he says is that even if this boat does fall apart he's a he's accomplished his mission of being able to take kids out on the water and if he gets enough uh, funding from uh, proving that he uh, can do that he might be able to afford to make a uh, more more safe vessel to uh, carry on the mission all uh, right to me, an interesting thing about tar is it changes over time. It loses, the, it dries out. It loses its solvents in it, and uh, it. You look at your tar on the road; it's all cracked up. Um, it does not expand and contract gracefully after the solvents are evaporated out of the tar. So again, my issue is about aging. It's an excellent question that you asked. I believe like 150 gallons of tar on this boat so far. One reason they have done that is is budget. Now, there's also an issue with uh, economy. What, what is good economy and, and uh, what is so-called false economy? Um, sometimes you're better to spend more money up front uh, if you've got it. These people are on a mission. Orland, uh, just up the road, in fact. But uh, the raw face seems to be the key phrase um, in this whole operation. Yes. Who's, who's going to be uh, driving the boat? George is uh, going to be the captain, and again, George has uh, never been sailing. Uh, he has been uh, thinking about the subject for a long time. Uh, George is a pretty smart fellow. Right. There, I mean, the coast of Maine can be really nice in the summertime, but there can also be some really scary days out there. And, you know, he's venturing even beyond the coast of Maine, and it, seamanship seems to be a real huge question in my mind, and, you know, just knowing what to do when, you know, when it gets really foggy or, you know, who knows what, you know, really, you know, really windy and he, he may have folks on board and it's definitely no small trick maneuvering a boat that size in and out of some of the harbors. Even a modern yacht with a uh, nice diesel engine. Right. So I'm I just, you know, I, he's using that loophole of, of having guests on board, but if I were him, I'd be really concerned about, um his potential guests maybe not wanting to get on board the boat, you know, if they're, if they're sort of um, well, disadvantaged in, in the first place. I think that's probably the one big reason why he's not getting any major funding because any of these foundations are looking at that and, and seeing the liability that, that's, uh, that's out there and just... Uh, unfortunately, he could, he could use some major funding so he could do some, uh, some things better like having a, a motor or, or a push boat and uh, better safety gear and more stout construction all that stuff but he can't do because of budgets but still he's going to have a tremendous liability i think 
you know, uh, again, I have reservations myself. I'm also inclined to let them have a try at it. Um, with the provision that, uh, as Peter Spector said in Wooden Boat Magazine about John F. Levitt, um, not only did they try to uh, ease their way around the rules there, then they specifically uh, lost the boat by uh, sitting there for a day and, and uh, broadside to the seas and taking their lumps. The captain, who had no experience, Ned Ackerman didn't, you know, he'd, you know, he'd seen a bunch of schooners, maybe he'd been sailing, but he didn't, certainly not an experienced captain, did not want to get out of range of, of possible helicopter rescue. Mm. And they stayed there for a good 24 plus hours, got beat up pretty badly, and then called Mayday and left the boat behind. They did not have to do that. That was, uh, I think, uh, extremely poor seamanship and uh, failure to act to help themselves. Yeah, well, as, you know, by occupation, I, I uh, am involved with, you know, teaching folks how to sail or, you know, it, and it seems like there's plenty of opportunity in this area, um, you know, with it, well within, you know, driving distance of him to, to get some education in, uh, in uh, sailing or basic seamanship or, you know, who knows what, you know, but it seems to me that that should be one of his priorities as well as finishing the boat, is learning how to, how to operate it in the first place. Yes. You make an extremely good point. Yes, yeah. very, very true. He, he is the ultimate person responsible for all those lives out there. And uh, you really ought to get as much knowledge, actual working knowledge, as possible. You're right. Right. You know, it's, you know a, tool, a tool is a great thing, but if you don't know how to use it, then it's, it's a worthless, worthless endeavor. But uh, it, I, think, I think it'll probably turn out in the end. Who knows, maybe some captains or mates will volunteer their time. And that excursion is the basis for the Dutch claiming and naming New Amsterdam. The remaining eight, those of you who heard last month's show, may recall hearing a report from Korea, Maine, concerning an abandoned trunk. We have an update to that. For those of you who missed it, we'll play the whole thing. Maybe we'll stop in D.C. on the way. Next is a filler piece from a previous Boat Talk. That'll beach Boat Talk for another month. You can contact Boat Talk at info at weru.org. Just put Boat Talk in the subject line. Happy sails to you. I survive the boat and I survive the sail, sir. I survive the pits of fish and take some home to lie, sir.